about that song that I forgot to say at the beginning was in the third verse it tells the three the symbols of the three things that the wise men brought I don't know if you caught that but it was gold a king is born today incense God is with us and myrrh his death will make a way and by his blood he'll win us which brings us into the next one which is called fullness of grace Laying aside his power and glory 
Thank you for your singing. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a firstborn son, and she wrapped him with him in cloth and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And the word became flesh and dwell among us, and we behold his glory as the, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time, only the begotten from the Father, right? The only begotten God, who is the blossom of the Father, has explained expanded. Luke, in his account of the um, birth of Jesus, gives us a perspective of a physical reality of the event. A young woman, a pregnancy, a journey to a distant town in an awkward time, because of an order given by the king for his political reasons. The birthing in the stable in far... Um, less than ideal circumstances. These were the physical realities of the birth of Jesus. It was no birth, it was a birth no different in many ways than any other birth, but it was m many ways worse than many other births, hard, cold physical realities. John, in his account of the birth of Jesus, gives the perspective of the spiritual reality of the event. God became flesh. The God of the universe became human and came and lived the rest of their life human race here on earth. Since God is a spirit of, and invisible to the specific human eye, there, no one has ever seen God. But Jesus, the only begotten God, became human. And the people who lived at the time saw Jesus in their specific human eye. Jesus has explained God to us because he is the only begotten God. As we prepare for the celebration of Christmas, we need to remember those two perspectives. God works in both physical realities and, the, and in the spiritual realities. They're, the two are connected. God still works in that way, in a physical reality of work, of relationships, of the stress of keeping everything going, of things happening in op inopportune times. God works to make himself known to us. So we can prepare for the celebration of Christmas this year. Let's be reminded that the reality of the life doesn't mean that God is somehow locked out. He will still make himself known to you. And keep touching base with you even as you go through the stress and realities of the season. Thank you.
Thank you, ladies. <coughs> well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our weekly service once again here this morning. It's good to all, good to see you all here, and uh, it's nice that God gave us a little break in the cold temperatures for at least a day, anyway. So it was much more pleasant to go outside this morning than it has been for the last few days. But anyway. It's good to have you all here. If you would, once again, as we like to do each Sunday, uh, open up your uh, bulletins. And on the second page is the call to worship. And we'd just like to, uh, to read that together as a, as a group. It's from Psalm 104, so let's just read it all together. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my last breath. May all my thoughts be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here once again to, uh, to worship you and to celebrate together and to have fellowship together. We just thank you that we can do this freely, Lord. And, uh, and yeah, and thank you that you've blessed us with a, with a church and a pastor and a, uh, and a group of people that just love gathering together to do that. So we just want to hand this service over to you this morning, Lord, to be to your glory and to your praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Reading as well. Uh, it's from the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Acts 17, 16 to 34. I will be reading from the NIV. And this little passage is in mine is titled, In Athens. So we will read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when we will judge the world, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Ask God to guide our thoughts as we do so. <clears throat> Lord God, we just want to praise and thank you for your word to us and the fact that all of it is your word to us and help us, Lord, just to hear it and understand it and uh, help me, Lord, as I speak this passage that you would uh, just take control and it would be what you once said to be said and help us Lord just to all open our hearts and minds to whatever it is that you are saying to us and what you want us to hear from this and uh, give us your strength and guidance to understand that uh, we pray in your name Amen I have voiced my concern several times over the years about the lack of biblical knowledge there is in our society and even in our churches, uh, many among those who call themselves Christians. So I came across a humorous piece that, I, that illustrates this that I thought I would share with you this morning. It's a com compilation of, uh, of things that came out from the mouths of Sunday school students who obviously had misunderstood the teaching that they had received. And I, I think I probably used this piece a number of years ago, but I trust none of you will remember it, so it'll be <laughs> new to you. <laughs> so here it is. Here's the story of the Bible from the mouths of Sunday school students who didn't quite get things right. <laughs> God got tired of creating the world, so he took a Sabbath off. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> yeah, boy, we better not go anywhere there. Uh, Samson was a strong man who let himself 
let himself be led astray by a Jezebel like Delilah. Samson slayed the Philistines with the acts of the apostles. Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea, and there they made unleavened bread without any ingredients. The Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterward, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. <laughs> the fifth commandment is to humor your father and mother. Seventh commandment is to not admit adultery. <laughs> Moses died before he ever reached Canada. <laughs> then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. <laughs> David was a Hebrew king skilled at playing the liar. Liar, L-I-A-R. <laughs> he fought with the Finkelsteins, a grace of people who lived in biblical times. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Jesus enunciated the golden rule which says to do one to others before they do one to you. <laughs> the people who followed the Lord were called the twelve decibels. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. <laughs> one of the apostles was St. Matthew. He was by profession a taxi man. Paul, St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. A Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. Oh boy. <laughs> and I read that and I thought, if you don't understand why that piece is funny, then you pr probably can count yourselves among those who don't know your Bible very well. <laughs> As Christians, we need to make it a point to become well-versed and educated in the Bible. But... The vast majority of non-Christian and non-church people in our society really have no idea what the Bible teaches. They've heard of some things. They may have been taught a few things in their growing up years, mostly just enough to give them some very distorted impressions. And that scenario comes into play when it comes to sharing the gospel with those around us. We need to be aware of where they are at in their Bible knowledge, and that will tell us how to proceed in sharing the gospel with them. So, the passage we come to today in the book of Acts, in our sermon series through the book of Acts, the passage we come to today is this passage that was just read, the second half of Acts chapter 17. Um, and this passage in this second half of Acts 17 speaks to this very scenario. As we've seen over the past few chapters in Acts, when Paul and his companions went to a city to preach the gospel there, they went first to the Jewish synagogue that was in that city. Many of the bigger cities throughout the Roman Empire at that time did have a Jewish synagogue in them. And when Paul would go to any city, he would seek out first the Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel to them. And as he preached to them, he preached that Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures had prophesied would come. Now the Jews that made up the Jewish synagogue where he preached, they were very familiar with the scriptures. They knew the teachings. They believed in the one true God. They believed that God created the universe. They believed that mankind was created in the image of God. 
They believed mankind fell into sin, and the curse of sin is now on all creation. They believed because the scriptures prophesied that there would be a Messiah who would come and bring freedom. So those basic beliefs were pretty, they were pretty much in place. So when Paul preached to them, to that Jewish audience, Paul took off from that point and preached the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. But when you're addressing a non-Christian or non-church crowd who really have no idea about the basic teachings of the Bible, it's a little bit different. You can't start with those assumptions that the people you're talking to have those basic beliefs. And the passage we come to today brings that out. We left off, remember, from last week with Paul being taken from Berea as far as the sea, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 14 tells us that. And then in verse 15, he went as far as Athens. Verse 15 tells us that. Athens, the capital city of Greece. It's now under Roman rule at this time, of course, but it was still the capital city of Greece. And then Paul instructed the people who were escorting him to go back to Berea, tell Silas and Timothy to join him there in Athens. And so they left Paul there in Athens and went back to Berea with Paul's message and Paul's instructions. So while Paul was waiting for his companions, he took the time to walk around the city. And he did preach the gospel in the synagogue there at Athens and also shared Jesus in the marketplace, which would have been kind of the center of life and activity in that city of Athens. And it so happened that Paul's teaching caught the attention of some of the philosophers of that city. Athens was a bit of a hotbed for philosophical teaching and debate and seemed to be a place where at least some of the Athenians just thrived on these discussions and these debates and on hearing something new and debating that. Verse 21 brings that out. At any rate, there were two main schools of philosophy at that time in Athens. They were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Stoics, their system of philosophy, they emphasized the rational over the emotional. They advocated moral earnestness and a high sense of duty and a conduct that was according to nature. They were pantheistic in that they believed there were many gods. Epicureans, they believed that happiness was the chief end of life. And the pleasure most worth enjoying was a life of tranquility, free from pain and disturbing passions and superstitious fears, free from all that and just be happy. <laughs> they didn't deny the existence of gods and many gods, but they really felt that whatever gods there were uh, took no interest in the life of mankind. Those are the two main schools of philosophy that were debated there at Athens. So Paul got to talking with these various philosophers from both schools. And they wanted to hear more of Paul's philosophy. Uh, what was Paul teaching? And like it says there in verse 21 that uh, these people there, they, uh, they, they, they lived upon this. They thrived on this. Hearing something new. Debating something different. That's what they like. So, Paul, let's, uh, let's, let's hear more about what you're talking about. What kind of philosophy are you, are you teaching here? And so they took Paul to the Areopagus. That was a kind of a prestigious council in Athens that had charge over the religious and educational matters. Uh, so they took Paul there and they asked Paul to explain his new and strange teaching that he was 
seem to be advocating. Well, what an opportunity. Paul didn't have to be asked twice. And so the rest of the chapter then, from verse uh, 22 on, is Paul's sermon to the people of this council. They're on Areopagus and on Mars Hill in Athens. And what we see from this sermon is Paul taking a totally different approach when speaking to this crowd who had absolutely no knowledge of the one true God or the scriptures which God has given. Took a totally different approach to this crowd than he did when he preached in the Jewish synagogue. And that's what we want to look at today, this different approach. It's relevant, and it's important that we do, because the people we run into and rub shoulders with in our lives, many of them will likely have very limited knowledge of the one true God or of the scriptures. And so how Paul handled this situation gives us some guidance as to how to do that. So let's look into it. As Christians, we need to know how to share the gospel with those who are biblically uneducated. And we can understand better how to do this by following the examples given by Paul in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. So I see four things. There might be more, but I see four things here that I'd like to bring out. Four examples. Number one, start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. When dealing with people who have no knowledge of the one true God or of the teachings of the Bible, it's important to start at the beginning. Because that's foundational to them understanding the gospel message. And I fear sometimes we make that mistake. I know I have. Those who have been raised in good Christian homes and churches who have heard the teachings of the Bible all their lives, been in Christian circles all our lives, we have some basic beliefs as our foundation, and we are often guilty of assuming that others do too. And then we have kind of a vernacular when we talk, especially about spiritual things. We have a vernacular that we use, a vocabulary that we use, and have all our lives. That we just, without thinking, we just assume everyone else will know what we mean when we use those words. But those who are uneducated in the Bible or have never been in Christian circles really have no idea what we're talking about. So a humorous story to illustrate this. Story is told of a preacher way back when. Went up, <clears throat> up to the mountains to preach the gospel. And upon arriving, he struck up a conversation with the first old man he met. And the preacher asked him, are you a Christian? And the old mountain said, nope, nope, Mr. Christian, Mr. Christian lives up the holler a ways. <laughs> well, no, what I mean is, are you lost? Well, I reckon not, he said. I've been here and I had to 30 years now and know pretty much every cow path in these hills. <laughs> you don't understand the preacher. When I mean, are you ready for the judgment day? And the old mountaineer says, well, when's it coming? And the preacher said, well, we don't know. It might come today, it might come tomorrow. We just don't know. And then he said, the mountaineer responded, well, for goodness sakes, don't tell my missus. She'll want to go both days. <laughs> We have a vocabulary we use that sometimes we assume other people understand what we're talking about, but if they don't have that background, they don't. So in cases like this, where the ones we're dealing with have no prior knowledge of biblical teaching or 
Christian vernacular, you need to start at the beginning. And that's the example Paul gives us there. Verse 22 and following. He is speaking to these philosophers. Obviously these philosophers are highly educated in their field, but not in the one true God, not in the scriptures. And so we have to go back to verse 16 to get the context there. In verse 16 it says that in walking around Athens, Paul noticed the city was full of idols. And it would be. They were, they were a pantheistic people. They believed in many gods. They had an idol for every one of them. And, what, and that bothered Paul a lot, verse 16 tells us. It was very dismayed at seeing all these idols. Idol worship was, and it is, a huge affront to the one true God. So when Paul starts addressing the philosophers there at the Areopagus, he starts right at the beginning. Let's read, verse, starting in verse 22, let's read. So Paul stood on the, in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you are a very religious people in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all over the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Let's stop there. So Paul started with something that they were familiar with, and that was that idol, that idol to an unknown God, or that altar. To an unknown God. I kind of chuckle when I read that. I guess they wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. Um, <laughs> they didn't want to insult any God that they perhaps weren't even aware of. So they even had an altar to an unknown God. But with a stroke of genius, Paul takes off from that and saying, that's the God I want to talk to you about. This one that you don't know about. You kind of know it's there, but you don't really know. That's the one I want to teach you about. And so he started telling them about the one true God. And notice that he started right at the beginning. He started with creation. This God made the heavens and the earth. And all that is in them. That's where it all got started. Verse 26. And this God made from one person every nation of mankind that is on the earth. So, of course, he's talking about Adam, whom God created, and then from Adam, God created Eve, and then from those two, everyone on planet earth came into being. So he covers that. And then going on, Paul says, God made from them every nation to, and he made them to live all over the face of the earth. And this God determined the times for the nations and the boundaries of where they would live. Now that's the story. In the beginning, you read the book of Genesis, you see that. <laughs> that's the story of the beginning. The story of the dispersion of the humanity following the Tower of Babel recorded in Genesis 10 and 11. 
And God determined all that. Where they would all live. Where the nations would live. What their boundaries would be. It's all determined by God. So Paul starts with that. Right at the beginning. With that basic uh, teaching of how it all came into being. God did this. Verse 27. That the people of the nations would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. And, and, and that's the story behind all those idols. People are searching. They're trying to find God. And in their blind searching and groping, they are coming up with these man-made gods. But even that isn't enough. There's still something they haven't found. That's why they have an altar to an unknown God. Because there's still something that they're searching for. And people all over the world, from all nations, are searching and groping for God. For something. They may not even be able to know what it is that they're searching and groping for. But they know there's something. It's the one true God they're searching for. But in reality, Paul says, God is not far from any of us. So, that's a good example for us to follow when we are dealing with people who have no Bible knowledge, have never been in church or in Christian circles. Start at the beginning. Start with the God who created everything. Tell them about how God created us all and in his image, but how we rebelled and, and take it from there. You know, starting with John 3.16, like a lot of us are tempted to do, that may not be very effective. As these people have no context into which to put what that verse says. You see a big stadium sometimes, a big sporting event, somebody holding up a sign, John 3.16. I don't know what they think that's going to do, <laughs> but it's probably not going to be very effective. <laughs> Need to need to start right at the beginning, right with creation. Tell them about God created everything and humans in his image, and tell them about how we got here to the place we are right now. That's the first example that Paul leaves us. Start at the beginning. Secondly, emphasize the supremacy of God. Emphasize the supremacy of God. Notice in our passage here how Paul contrasts the one true God with the idols that are being worshipped. Go back there to verse 24 and 25. You can kind of look at it while I go on here. Uh, God, the one true God, is not like man-made idols and gods that people dreamed up on their own. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He doesn't need a temple to live in. To dwell in. He doesn't need us to make him one so he has a place to live. He doesn't need us to serve him so that he can survive. He is the one who gives life and breath to us and to all loving thing, uh, living things. He doesn't need us to keep serving him and feed him so that he can keep going. He's not like the idols, he's supreme. And so that's in direct contrast to what. They believed about their gods. Their gods depended on humans to give them sacrifices, to give them a place to live, to serve them. They needed that. And if the humans didn't do that, those gods would get very angry and would curse them in some way. That was their beliefs about those gods. So Paul told them that the one true God that he's preaching, he's supreme over all. He's much superior to the gods that they made up. And made an idol to. And then worship. 
God is supreme. Down to verse 29. It's wrong to think that God is like silver or gold. Or is like an image formed by the art and thought of some human. I'm sure some of those idols were very well done. The sculpture did a very nice job, I'm sure, of, of, of making it. But it's the art and the thought of some human. No, we're his offspring, Paul says. We're the one true God, we're his offspring. We come from him. So Paul here gives us an example of emphasizing the supremacy of God. God is supreme over all, much superior to any man-made, made-up God that people come up with. They're just the product of human imagination. The real God, the one true God, is supreme over all. We all live and move and breathe through him. He created us and he sustains us. He isn't like the idols. He is so far above those idols. He is supreme. And so for us, when dealing with the biblically uneducated, as I've called them, I'm not sure if that's a good word or not, but <laughs> couldn't think of a better one. When we're dealing with them, tell them about God's supremacy. He is God. He's the creator of all. He gives life. We don't prop him up. He keeps us going. He is God. He is supreme. We need to tell him that. Thirdly, third example I see here, explain God's desire to reach out to all. Explain God's desire to reach out to all. Verses 30 and 31. Paul packs a lot of stuff into those two verses. Let's read them. Paul is kind of bringing his sermon here to a conclusion. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. A lot of stuff in those two verses. So in times past, Paul says, God has overlooked the ignorance of the nations. That's kind of what Paul is saying there. As they went after their idols. In times past, God overlooked the times of ignorance. But now, God is declaring to people of all nations that they should repent. In times past and now. What has happened to make a change in God's dealing with the nations? Before he overlooked because of the ignorance of the people. Now God is declaring the people of all nations should repent. What's happening to make that change? Verse 31. God has fixed a day of judgment when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Well, let's stop right there for a second. What I want us to see here is that in saying this, Paul is telling them that God Almighty, the God that he is telling them about, is reaching out to them. He is reaching out to people of all nations. There's a judgment day coming and God is reaching out to all people, telling them to repent so they can escape the judgment of that day. 
God is concerned about the people of all nations. We are, after all, all his offspring in the sense of being created by him. He loves all people. He's concerned about all people. And he wants all people to repent and come to him. People need to know that. They need to understand that. So in sharing the gospel with those who are biblically uneducated, we need to make sure that they know God cares deeply about them, is concerned about them, is reaching out to them, and is longing for them to repent and turn to him. They need to know that there's a judgment day coming and God is reaching out to them and longing for them to repent and turn to him before that day comes. So that's another example that Paul leaves us that we need to follow. Just explain God's desire to reach out to all people and encourage them to repent before that judgment day. Then fourthly and finally, declare Jesus as the climax of God's plan of salvation. So let's go back to that question I asked just a second ago. What happened that before God overlooked the times of ignorance and now God is declaring that all should repent. What happened in there? Ready to touch on it. Verse 31. Look at the rest of the verse. You can follow along. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed. Who's that man? End of verse 31. God proved who this man was. To all the world by raising him from the dead. Well, now we know he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom the world will be judged in righteousness. That Jesus is that one is proven by the fact that he died and rose again. So now we have the full answer. What changed from the before and the now is the coming of Jesus. Before, God overlooked the times of ignorance. But now, since Jesus came and rose from the dead, God is declaring to everyone from all nations that they need to repent because the judgment day is coming. It's fixed. Friends, Jesus is the climax of God's plan of salvation. With the coming of Jesus, everything changed. All of God's dealings with mankind center around and reach their fulfillment in Jesus. If we're going to be saved from judgment on judgment day, we need to repent and turn to Jesus before judgment day. That's all packed into those two verses. <laughs> so Jesus needs to be where we take things when we share the gospel with the biblically uneducated. We don't start with Jesus, but we need to end up there. Jesus is the Savior we all need. His death pays the price of death, which our sin demands. His resurrection gives the victory over sin and death. And upon repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven, we're cleansed, and we're spared judgment. The judgment of the coming on the day of judgment. So that's the fourth example in this passage that Paul left us when it comes to sharing the gospel with the biblically uneducated. You can see them when Paul mentioned the resurrection there. You look at the last few verses, 32, 33, 34. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that kind of um, brought things to a head. When they, 
uh, heard about the resurrection, some began to sneer at that thought. And, but others were kind of interested. Oh, we want to hear you again. And so that was the end of that sermon there at the Areopagus. Paul kind of left. The sermon was over. But he does make the point that some people believed. And he mentions a couple of them by name. We saw last week that, I think it was last week, that when you share the gospel, there will be some that will be hostile to it. There will be some that will be open to it and accept it. You never know. It's always the case. But we need to keep on sharing the gospel because we don't know who those people are. <laughs> and when we share the gospel with those who are biblically uneducated, this is kind of the examples that Paul left us that I think are a good idea for us to follow. Friends, we're approaching the Christmas season. Often Christmas is a time when people are a little more open to the gospel. A little more open to the gospel message. It's okay at Christmas time for there to be on TV, on public TV, songs that extol Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not okay any other time of the year, but at Christmas time it's okay. <laughs> and we can sing joy to the world. We can sing about Jesus coming. A little more openness at Christmas time, I think, in our society and the people of society. People might be a little more open to the gospel message during Christmas. We're celebrating a great event when Jesus, the God the Son, became human and was born into this world. During the Christmas season, most people will have an openness to that. And it may well be that some of your biblically uneducated friends and acquaintances may be a bit more open during the Christmas season. And if we are spiritually sensitive to them, we may well have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So let's keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts open and sensitive for those opportunities that might be coming our way in the next few weeks. So therefore we see from this passage some examples given by the Apostle Paul as to how to share the gospel with the biblically uneducated. They are, number one, start at the beginning, creation. God created everything, humans included. Number two, emphasize the supremacy of God. He is supreme. He gives life to all. Not the other way around. Explain God's desire to reach out to all. God loves each one and is concerned for each one and wants everyone to repent, turn to him to be spared the judgment, and then fourthly, declare Jesus as the climax of God's plan of salvation. Jesus came so we would have a way to be saved from the penalty of our sin. He's the only way. And that's where we need to end up on. So I encourage all of us, myself included, to be open this Christmas season to the opportunities that may present themselves to us to share the gospel with our acquaintances and take the lessons of this passage in doing that. So as we do every Sunday morning, let's just take a time of silence, just bow your heads before God and just listen in your heart. What is God saying to me personally from this this morning? What's the word for me? I'll give you a few moments.
Amen. Music team, please.
Thank you for your singing.